0: I turn now to Isaiah chapter 55, well this won't be the only scripture that I'll read this evening during this sermon, but we come to the topic this evening of God's providence. and So I'll begin by reading now Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 through 13, and this is the Lord's word as he gave to Isaiah, so as we've been privileged to sing God's word, we now come to hear it read and I call upon you to attend with reverence the reading of God's inspired and therefore inerrant word again this is isaiah 55 verses 6 through 13 seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the lord and he will have mercy on him And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress tree, and instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And thus ends the reading of God's word for us just for this short time. There all the other readings uh, during this sermon. But well, let's again briefly pray. Lord, we do seek your face now. For we know that we need your Holy Spirit to reveal to us the right meaning and application of your word. So we would pray now that we might uh, hear your word this evening and apply it well to our lives, even as we come to have a growing confidence in you through our understanding of your providential care over your creation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we come to uh, the chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith entitled Providence. So for this evening's sermon, that's the, the topic, and I'll just uh, I'll read to you what the confession has to say about that. And We won't be able to touch on every proof text uh, for the topic of providence, but hopefully we will see here uh, that God indeed is in control. We've already talked about God's sovereignty before, but we see that, that God governs all things for his glory, and also for the good of his people. And so uh, there's much that can be said uh, about what we just read from this evening's scripture lesson, Uh, but I'm going to concentrate on the things that we find in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. Uh, And also I want to read to you here shortly uh, Matthew 10, verses 29 through 30. First, again, let me... Uh, read again Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that uh, tells us what, if we think about it, we already ought to know that uh, God, of course, having an infinite mind, uh, can think of things that we can never grasp because we have a finite mind, uh, which means that it's quite possible for uh, him to govern all things. And even as we will see uh, later that our confession affirms, it's quite possible that God can cause all things to come to pass as he wills, as we talked about with, his, with the topic of his eternal decrees, but also not be responsible morally for our sins. So that he ordains the existence of sin, but is not morally responsible for our choice to sin. Uh, That is hard for us with our finite minds to quite wrap our minds around. But just because I can't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. Of course, we can understand it to the extent that God has revealed it. He reveals it in a way that we can understand. Uh, But even if you have a hard time understanding that, it doesn't make it any less true. But the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And the heavens, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And he goes on then to say in verses 10 and 11 here of Isaiah 55, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty. So there's an implication there that they do understand the hydrological cycle, and actually even Job talks about that. that they do know that water then, after coming and nourishing, the earth evaporates and, and uh, can seed the clouds again as it will and fall back to the earth. But, so they, they say that just like the rain, God's word goes forth from him, and it does return to him, but it doesn't return void it does something like the rain does, like the rain nourishes the earth. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now there's a lesson in that that's not tied directly to this topic of providence, but it's good for us to to think of daily, which is that God's word is living and active, it is powerful, it does not return to him empty. So, Uh, sharing God's word with other people has an effect Uh, whether we have done anything particularly persuasive or not uh, God's word has its own effect but for tonight's point we just note that the Lord promises that as his word goes forth as he ordains that something happens his word accomplishes what he pleases and it prospers in the thing for which he sent it In Matthew 10 verses 29 through 30 we also see what the Lord has to say which I didn't mark that like I planned to but in Matthew 10 verses 29 through 30 we we read this. Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So no sparrow can fall from the ground apart from your father's will. So Jesus' point there partly is, so how much more does God care for you? But he says the very hairs of your head are numbered. Mine are easier to number than they used to be. But we definitely know that the Lord actually has numbered the hairs of our heads even. Not a single hair can be plucked or fall from your head apart from God's providential will. And since God is a trustworthy God, that should bring us a great deal of comfort. So what we see in these scriptures is directly related to the concept of God's sovereignty that we talked about uh, recently when studying God's eternal decrees. But here we see that the focus is on God's daily moment by moment, control of his creation. And that's what we call providence. The Confession puts it like this. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So, God upholds, directs, and disposes, and governs creatures, actions, and things. So, in case something wasn't covered by creatures and actions, there's all things. And, uh, as the Confession says, from the greatest even to the least. Nothing is outside of God's control, Is As R.C. Sproul used to say, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule, right? There's nothing outside of the Lord's control. Uh, We would say even the least subatomic particle is not outside of the Lord's control. And he uh, controls these things according to his foreknowledge, knowing everything that shall come to pass, as he has ordained the end from the beginning, as he tells Isaiah, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. So as As we've seen already, the Lord ordains that all things come to pass and ultimately that will be for His glory, as the Confession says. Nothing is outside of His immutable will. So in other words, that also means He doesn't change His mind. And that's a a great comfort to us as well. As as He said even uh, through uh, the prophet who spoke... uh, to the king of Moab and said that the Lord is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. But how does he carry this out? Well, the confession explains although in relation to foreknowledge and the decree of God the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So, what that's saying is that ordinarily, God works out his providential plan by the means of secondary agents, either by uh, things that he's simply created to do the thing that they're ordained to do, or by their own free will. Creatures will do the things that God foreordained. Uh, not not because they're automatons, but because God has uh, foreordained these things and or contingently because you know, cause and effect happens, right? <clears throat> so, uh, he uses the laws of nature, for example. Uh, he also uses people. Uh, for example, in Acts 8, we read about Philip who preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who was the servant of the queen mother of Ethiopia. Now God could simply have spoken the gospel out of heaven and converted the Ethiopian eunuch. It's quite within God's capability to do that. But that's not the way he did it. It's not the way he did it for me either. It's not the way he did it for you, likely. In the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, he used Philip, a secondary means. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and Romans 10 speak of our preaching the gospel as God's ordinary means that he uses to bring people to salvation in Christ. In Romans 10, Paul tells us specifically that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And in the same chapter he says, well, who is going to hear unless someone preaches? That's the way God has ordained that this will happen. So God uses secondary means He doesn't do everything directly in the sense that we might think of him directly doing something. That's how he works out his plan in every area of creation, not just in bringing people to Christ as well. He ordinarily uses secondary means. In the Old Testament, he could have supernaturally destroyed the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah when he ordained their destruction. He could have done what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, right where a fire fell from heaven and destroyed those cities. But that wasn't ordinarily how he did things. Instead, in the case of his ordained destruction of Israel, he chose the nation of Assyria to invade that land, to take it over, to conquer it, and to deport the people. In the case of the southern kingdom of Judah, he used the nation of Babylon to do the same thing. So he used secondary means. Now just because God ordinarily chooses to use secondary means though does not mean that he has to. It's up to him. And if he wants to directly intervene, he's quite capable and can and will do that. His hands aren't tied. As the confession states, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet, it yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So, uh, think of his ordinary means of the laws of physics. He can work against those laws if he wants to. According to the second law of thermodynamics and uh, entropy, that is a sub uh, substructure of that, if you will, uh, <clears throat> things on earth because, of course, we're under the curse for sin, die. You and I are subject to death in our bodies. And if a person dies, the body immediately begins a process of decay. That's ordinary. But God is quite capable of reversing that and moving against that will, or that, uh, that ordinary process, against that means, and overcome those laws of physics And bring death, or bring life rather, from death. Only God, in fact, can do that, bringing life from non life. Of course, if He can call everything into being in the first place out of nothing, He can do certainly whatever He wants with the things that He's created. So, God could use the Assyrians to bring destruction to the northern kingdom of Israel, or He could supernaturally intervene and cause the earth to swallow up rebellious Israelites like he did in the rebellion of Korah in the days of Moses. That's the difference ordinarily between what we would call providence and a miracle, even though the miracles still work according to God's providential plan. But a miracle is God's supernatural intervention in which he accomplishes his plan by speaking or willing something to happen without secondary means where he's intervening directly. Just as when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them by his word, Jesus heals a blind man or brings Lazarus to life simply by saying so. It was the direct power of God. A blind man's sight might be restored by secondary means, Depending on what's caused the blindness, surgery can help. But God can also do it without secondary means if he wants to. Jesus said so, and it happened. Providence is God's governing all things and working out his plan, both by his direct and extraordinary means and by ordinarily secondary means. The right person is in the right place at the right time to share the gospel with you. The wind blows at a certain speed under certain conditions of snow and you get a blizzard. All of that's within God's providential plan. God wants to discipline Israel... And the Assyrians, through no desire to serve God, they didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think Yahweh would love it if we would invade Israel and take the people captive and scatter them throughout our empire. No, that was God's will, but for their own selfish reasons, they invaded Israel and did exactly what God wanted them to do. The same thing with Babylon and the southern kingdom of Judah. And God held those nations accountable for the sinful reasons that they did exactly what he had ordained would happen. So that's what the confession means uh, when it says the almighty power and searchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall. So in in other words, even the fall of mankind into sin was part of God's plan. Uh, People might say, well, why in the world would God want to do that and as we see in places like Romans 9 it's helpful to see that God has given us a situation in which this is not the best possible world the world was good it was very good as God originally created it of course we see now in its fallen state it's not the best possible world but without the fall the best possible world could not exist because ultimately without the fall god would not be glorified as the one that we see as a punisher of sin and a forgiver of sinners and we could not have seen that without the existence of sin and so both both sides of the equation god's punishment of sin whether it's of the sinners themselves or of christ in their place and his love of sinners are shown and can only be shown with a fallen world so god even uh, ordained the first fall but then it, the confession says in all other sins of angels and men that's not out of God's control and that not by a bare permission but such as hath joined with it in most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. So in other words God ordains sins for his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, and not from God. So he's not responsible for our moral decisions when we make a decision to sin, but he does ordain what comes to pass. Who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So that may be hard for us to wrap our minds fully around, but it is what the scriptures teach. What that's saying is that God uses sin sinlessly to bring about his good purposes. He especially uses it for the good of his covenant people, which is what we see in the next paragraph of the Confession. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them that hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. So in other words, God will uh, let us be tempted. He does not directly tempt us, but he will let us be tempted. He will chastise us for our former sins by leaving us in our sins for a time. Or uncover to us, so in other words, reveal to us something sinful that we're overlooking in ourselves. It says that they being humbled... And to raise, or that they be humbled. So he does that to humble us. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. So he allows us to be in our sins, to bring upon ourselves these afflictions. To teach us to depend on him. He may allow afflictions or bring afflictions into our lives for no sin at all that we have committed. Now, afflictions only exist because sin exists, but it might not. There's not always a one-to-one relationship in your life. Think of Job. How he was a righteous man, and and had the Lord not called to Satan's attention, Job's righteousness, Satan would never have sought to tempt or uh, bring Job to curse God. And Job did not curse God, by the way. So we see that it was for no sin of Job's that that happened, but rather to show that he was a righteous man. So God has his manifold reasons for bringing afflictions upon us. Here are a few, though. This is to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. So we see that God does allow even our sins and ordains them for ultimately our own good. He even uses our sins to discipline us, to teach us what is displeasing to Him, to reveal things we need to change about ourselves, to humble us, to teach us that all righteousness is from Him and not from within ourselves, to teach us to depend on Him, to defeat sin, and to put us on guard against our own tendency to wicked things. He also uses evil for the punishment of evildoers. As the confession says, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden from them, he not only withholdeth his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. So think of Pharaoh in the days of Moses. God withdrew even the common grace that he had given to that nation and brought disaster upon disaster upon disaster on that nation. And the same revelation of God which softened some of the people that witnessed this and caused some of the Egyptians what to go out with Israel when they left hardened Pharaoh and many other the Egyptians. And so that's very much what, what the confession says. And withal giveth them over to their own lusts the temptations of the world and the power of Satan whereby it cometh to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. As one Puritan preacher once said, the same sunlight that softens wax hardens clay. The same revelation of God softens some and hardens others. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, in uh, verses 26-28, through where he speaks of mankind in our fallen state and says, for this reason God gave them, for the reason that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, Leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. That goes back to the last passage, or the last paragraph of the confession, also, where we see that our sins can be their own punishment in one sense. And even, Paul says, as they did not like to retain God and their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. I'm reading beyond what I uh, mentioned there. Reading verses 29 and 30, you're here. They're whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. I'll go ahead and go through verse 32. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We could go on and on about how our own culture in the last several decades has exemplified that process sadly The same exposure, though, of sin that converts the elect and teaches us to repent will simply offend and harden the hearts of others. The same tragedy, the loss of a child or a spouse, for example, that drives some to seek the Lord, will drive others away. That's a good test, by the way, of whether you're truly converted Uh, Do tragedies and joys alike drive you to the Lord, or do they drive you away? So providence is therefore the term we use as a shorthand for the fact that God governs all things. In that sense, everything is providential. There is no such thing as luck or random chance. We can use chance usefully as a word to talk about probabilities, but if we're saying that something happened by chance, as if chance caused it, well now we're, we're giving chance a power, as if it's an actual thing in the universe, that, as if basically it's a God. Nothing can happen outside of God's will. And so we have to give up notions of chance and luck like that. But we also use the term providence in a more specific and special way, in a way in which we as God's people can take great joy. We've already touched on this. Have you ever noticed how things just seem to fall out in such a way that they they bring you closer to the Lord? Whether it's a tragedy or a joy in your life. That they further the gospel. That they work out for the best for God's people. Even the worst persecutions and disasters end up growing the church. Maybe You have those days when you unexpectedly run into just the right person to answer that question that you've been asking God. Sometimes, as I pointed out earlier, uh, through no collusion or no forethought of mine, uh, I'll find that, that what we're studying in Sabbath school happens to be just about something that I'm going to be talking about in the sermon that morning. Or at other times, maybe I'll... I'll preach a sermon, and then afterwards Steve will say, you know what, that was just what we were talking about in the, in the youth Sabbath school class this morning. Things like that will happen quite often. The confession speaks to this as well, saying, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. And that's related directly to the notion of Christ's... Uh, providential or Christ's rather mediatorial kingship that Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth after accomplishing his mission and he governs all things on behalf of his church God has given Christ as the head of all things Paul says in Ephesians 1 to the church so I want you to take away from this four main points this evening number one God is in control of all things Number two, he works out his will through a plan that usually uses secondary means. Third, he uses even evil in a good way. He uses sin sinlessly. And fourth, while he governs all things in his providence, he especially uses providence for the good of his people. God is a trustworthy God. You can and should trust him. Knowing that We have a great reason to rejoice even in the midst of the greatest of sorrows in our lives. We can rejoice because we know we have a God who is capable of doing what He promises and always will do what He has planned and promised. Well, let's pray. Well, Father God, we do glorify You. We're grateful that there is nothing outside of Your control for we know that You are good and we can commit ourselves into the hands of a faithful creator even in the midst of the most difficult of times so that even evil results in good we thank you for the little glimpses of this we get in our own lives but we know that even the greatest evils in the history of the world will result in good even as the the greatest of all evils which was man's rejection of your son and putting the Righteous one, the holy one of God, to death by the hands of lawless men. That, Lord, was the greatest evil ever committed by mankind, and yet you have brought about the greatest good from it, and it was in your plan. We thank you especially for your special providence whereby you care for your church, dispose all things for our good. Keep us mindful of this that we might rejoice in you whether the circumstances of this life seem good or bad to us at any given moment. And all to the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.